Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. We've got a great lineup for you this week. We're going to kick things off by talking about some of the latest news we're seeing from uh, Facebook. They've launched a new ad campaign. This one's called Good Ideas Deserve to Be Found, which is making the case for personalized advertising. This, of course, comes in the wake of, uh, of Apple's privacy decisions that will have an impact on uh, personalized advertising on, on Apple devices, uh, ultimately setting not sharing as a default and forcing users to, to opt into sharing. So uh, Apple or so Facebook has, has uh, taken their campaign to the masses and trying to convince us that uh, this is personalized ads are a good thing, not a bad thing. It's not a creepy thing we're doing. Here. We're, we're trying to help you. <laughs> It's all about helping helping the consumer, really. Uh, yeah, you know, Facebook's uh, last attempt at uh, swaying public opinion on this really focused on the potential damage that uh, Apple's privacy controls would do to small businesses that wouldn't be able to find new consumers. But that's a tough uh, perspective to really drive uh, sympathy for. So so now it's trying to reframe the issue in terms of what the uh, advantages would be to consumers themselves, uh, the, uh, the, the joy of discovery of different services. And, you know, it, while it's easy to be cynical um, about this campaign, I, I have to say, I mean, I'm not a, a big Facebook user, but I do use Instagram, which, which of course is owned by Facebook. And I have found some, some fun things that have been, you know, brought to my attention on that service. Uh, really, you know, it's about uh, what uh, it, it's. It's re- at, in the end, it's really about what uh, everyone's personal uh, personal tolerances uh, for for sharing information, what the perception of uh, a benefit is. And so, even if in this campaign, Facebook can't succeed in getting pressure for Apple to change its mind about the implementing the controls, at least in the short term, it may convince some of uh, some consumers to, to opt in uh, because they're, what they're really advertising is the benefit to sharing personal information, regardless of what the obstacles uh, may, may be to, to doing so put, put into the operating system. Yeah, you know, economists have been looking at this for a very long time and uh, around behavioral economics and opting out uh, decisions. And there's a lot of things that we opt in, but we find that opting out policies produce much higher participation rates. So things like 401k contributions typically are opt in, but some companies are making those now opt out where you're you're enrolled by default. And if you don't want to, you opt out. Most people don't change the, the status quo. Facebook is obviously keenly aware of this research. They recognize that people aren't going to change the status quo, and they're trying to convince them to change that status quo from the beginning. And if they do, then then perhaps it will stick. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a, a believer in personal advertising. I think we're not there yet. I actually think mm. we there's a lot more uh, where that we could do and should do there. I hope we'll get there, and that it won't erode our trust in these these tech companies or in institutions broadly, we all hate seeing the ads floating around the internet for a product that we looked at, especially if we already bought that product. Uh, to your point, I think Instagram does a great job of, 
servicing maybe new ideas, new products for us. Um, and I, I, I do think I am a little sympathetic to the small business uh, argument that Facebook makes because I know small businesses, dog groomers and, and others who make their living off of word of mouth and a lot of their business was built on the back of, of Facebook. The ability to target specific people has really benefited their ad spend and they, they really find a great ROI. But at the end of the day, it's about bringing business to them. They wouldn't be spending on those ads if it didn't bring a real business to them. So I do think there's a lot at risk here for Facebook. All of this, of course, happening while Facebook is considering an antitrust case against Apple. Ross, you've mentioned that you think that is forthcoming, that it, they're just uh, you know dotting the I's and crossing yeah, the, the T's the, on the that. Count, the countdown has begun for sure on that, yeah. Uh, we did see this week they settled their spat with Australia. Presumably, they of for course, now. For seems, now, exactly. Yeah, for now, they hit the nuclear button last week and killed all news, or, or tried to kill all news on the, on Facebook, uh, and um, that didn't work out great for them. There was a lot of of backlash, and I think they did it in some ways to shock everyone in Australia and shock the world. And I think the problem is it is shocking that they think it's a good idea to just shut down a major uh, way we use these services. I think there's a real risk there. Well, it, it's it's kind of a, a personality characteristic of, of Facebook, particularly compared to Google, uh, which of course shares a, a similar revenue stream. And I, I think we've spoken about it on the podcast before. It's been kind of a personal uh, theme of, of mine to look at the difference in public perception between Facebook and Google. And Google is a lot less confrontational. Uh, there are a number of reasons that I think this is so in terms of the Apple relationship. But uh, looking at Australia, for example, uh, Google did do some ra- saber rattling over the idea of, uh, of, of cutting off search to Australia uh, due to the same proposed legislation. They, they threatened that. Ultimately, however, did not go through with that uh, as Facebook did with its threats. Uh, in, in the case of Apple, uh, Google also has not been nearly as confrontational. They have just decided not to use Apple's tracking mechanisms and are instead working on alternatives. But to your point, Sean, I think some of those alternatives like a privacy sandbox are going to really appeal in at least the short term to far more sophisticated marketers, uh, not necessarily these these small businesses that uh, have been uh, an important part of the Facebook advertiser base. Yep, I would agree with that. Uh, in other news this week, we saw that uh, Google announced that they will support a basic TV mode that essentially strips out all of the smart components of their smart TV operating system. It will cut out the apps, the voice control, other smart features, leaving television viewers with a TV experience. The, the, the dumbest smart TV you can buy. That's right. Uh, I'm going to get so, that trademarked. I'm going to get that trademarked, Sean. <laughs> uh, it, it will be bundled into their operating system. It'll be available on sets that will be shipping with the Google operating system, which will include TCL and Sony later in, in 2021. And so you can essentially turn it off, uh, turn off the smart features and have just the basic TV option. Ross, do you think anyone's going to take advantage of that? You think anyone's going to actually use it? Uh, sure. Well, you know, first of all, I, I think 
th this is a little bit of a head scratcher on the surface. I mean, why would you license a smart TV operating system and then provide the option to turn off virtually every smart feature there? And really, this is a market share battle uh, with uh, Roku. You know, we, we've spoken in the past about the leverage that Roku has over services like HBO Max and Peacock, and this week, uh, Viacom CBS. Uh, laid out the uh, the pricing terms for Paramount Plus, its replacement for CBS All Access, and and because of the uh, their market share, Roku has been able to negotiate very favorable terms for carrying these uh, these broadband channels. It's like the cable model uh, all, all over again. Uh, not not surprisingly, uh, and uh, and we've seen uh, Samsung, you know, also with very significant share. So. So now you look at um, Google uh, trying to increase its its share uh, on uh, on televisions, and uh, and this is uh, you know maybe kind of a Trojan horse kind of strategy to say to the manufacturer, you know, or or to the consumer, hey, you know, maybe you don't have interest in these services today. Maybe you don't even have broadband uh, today. Uh, then you have no use for these services. But over time, with the typical length of ownership for a TV, uh, you may acquire these services or, or the prices may come down or you may find things that you're interested in. Uh, at that time, you can reactivate the services and it won't be dominating your TV experience in the interim uh, as, uh, as some of these other interfaces are. Uh, of course, a, a related story uh, that we saw this week is LG is going to license the WebOS operating system. Uh, Sean, I know that you know, you've uh, had uh, pretty, pretty high praise for, for that interface. And uh, I would say it's exactly the same motivator that's, uh, that's in place here. Uh, the idea is to raise the number of, of sets on which it's installed uh, so you can negotiate more favorable terms with uh, content, content providers uh, on the service. It is a pretty major step for a company like LG to start licensing the operating system for their televisions because historically, uh, this is a company that has built its business model around selling hardware. And a lot of that goes to running underlying factories that you want to keep at high capacity utilization rates. And now they're, they're recognizing that, hey, they've built this platform and if they want to remain viable there and they really want to drive scale like like Roku and others have done then they need to license it to to others and they have had another a number of brands already sign on RCA Avans and uh Conca are all uh, going to be launching uh televisions that will run the the webOS TV operating system probably not Samsung anytime soon <laughs> Uh, but it will be interesting to see if Samsung goes in the same direction. Samsung, likewise, has been starting to offer services on top of its television platform. Those could easily be rolled out. Samsung other... Health. We, yeah. uh, we saw it actually looked like a pretty good offering from what we saw at CES. Yeah, they have a virtual trainer component. So there's a lot of interesting things that they might want to to scale as, as well. Uh, at CES, LG launched and released their 6.0 user interface for their webOS. Now this, what, what they're calling powered by webOS TV will be based on the webOS 5.0 platform. But mm. if you notice in, in what they were showing for the 6.0 platform on the front screen in the, the top left corner, really the first thing you look at was a, a place for sponsored content. 
So they're recognizing the value of these platforms. They're recognizing that they can monetize it and that they might be a, a play, pay for play opportunity here. And if they can get that on more televisions, then presumably they can raise the dollars that they're charging for that placement. Yeah, maybe maybe even uh, do a revenue share with the TV manufacturer to sweeten the pot a little bit. I mean, that's actually a great point I overlooked, Sean. I, I talked about the leverage with the uh, content providers, but there's also uh, an advertising model, which Roku has been able to tap into. And there's also a, um, uh, a an opportunity to launch your own uh, TV service, as Roku has done, uh, which has been ad-driven and which they have taken beyond their own platform uh, to the web, to smartphones. And uh, I believe that Roku TV, somewhat as a misnomer, is is now available on Amazon Fire TV devices. And one of the things uh, that also stands out to me is that it seems like some of the brands we're mentioning have signed up for licenses with multiple uh, operating system providers, unless they're switching uh, but but some of these have certainly, you know, TCL, uh, I, I think, has been a, a Roku uh, licensee in the past. So I don't know if they're going to do it by tiers of television or if they're going to offer a sor- uh, uh, offer a choice or if they're just kind of switching. But it seems like a lot is in play. Yeah, and I think there's probably some hedging there as well if they think that this is a winner-take-all market. I think, to your point about advertising, it's definitely going to play a more prominent role in our TV experience from the interface level and and layer of that. Uh, You think about what Google has done on the mobile phone or or certainly what they have done with search. They want to sit between consumers and advertisers. They want to to run that space. And so I think it's very natural that 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 will become a component of what they're doing with their operating system uh, in the television. And they obviously see it as a much bigger you know, a bigger opportunity. If you look at what they did with their, their mobile, you know, phone OS Android, it wasn't really about monetizing it directly. It was about building out big brand share and then taking advantage of that. Yeah. But they've never really had a lot of success bringing Android to any other device class. I mean, they've, they've had Android on TVs for, for quite a few years now. Uh, I can see it now, you know, want to switch your HDMI input, just watch this 30 second you know, in, in interstitial and uh, we'll, we'll get you to your DVD player right after that. So, Yeah, it will, it will be interesting to see if they can make the, make the pivot there. Uh, in our final story from the week, we see that Fry's Electronics announced that all 31 stores across nine states would be suddenly and permanently shuttered on Wednesday the 24th. Uh, Fry's has really been an iconic retailer in the electronic space. Ross, we're on the East Coast, so we don't have them here. I, I guess there is one in, in Atlanta. But um, whenever I went out West, whenever I was in San Francisco, I always tried to swing through a Fry's. It was almost like a rite of passage. Whenever yes. I was in Vegas for CES, I would try oh, to go sure. catch the Fry's there. Uh, if I ever needed anything while I was at CES, I would go to Fry's. Uh, there. And so, um, but in in many ways, the writing was on the wall for this to come in 2019. They were dealing with a lot of challenges. It was at that point, they switched to a consignment model, similar to what we see at Best Buy or Walmart, where they essentially don't pay for the product unless it sells and anything that doesn't sell, they can ship back. So it's a way of 
of pre-selling and capturing the cash before you actually have to pay it. Right, but but a big part of Fry's proposition was this candy store-like uh, retail environment where they had an unimaginable depth of niche uh, consumer electronics and, and PC products. And uh, once they switched there, uh, a lot of those shelves really became bare. And it was uh, really compounded not only by competition with, uh, with online retail, uh, but a lot of changes that we saw in the PC marketplace, you know, a lot of what drove people to fries were things like upgrade cards and hard drives and uh, memory and, you know, a lot of things that people used to upgrade that uh, they don't anymore in, in the age of the laptop. And so uh, a lot of that inventory went away and a lot of that traffic went away. So and, and at the peak, they carried everything. Everything. It was you, crazy. You could go in there and you it could was, find... It was a nerd's dream. Yes. You sure. would find yes. every component you would want for any type of, of hardware build, but you'd also find uh, plush Smurf dolls right in the <laughs> aisle right next to it. I mean, it was always an eclectic mix of, of things. And to your point, it, there was a lot of discovery that took place there. Mm. It was the ultimate showroom. And merchandisers at Fry's mm. were... Uh, were king, right? They really could bring in some really interesting product. If they wanted to take a gamble on a new product, they could bring it into the store, experiment with it. And if it was successful, they'd roll it out more broadly. So there was a lot of influence there. Although Fry's uh, d does have a little cameo in the uh, General Magic movie when they uh, they introduced the first uh, General Magic product, the, uh, the Sony Magic Link. They tried uh, demonstrating it at Fry's. And, you know, it was kind of a disaster because nobody really knew what it was or, or what it did. But, uh, but that turned out to be, you know, a bigger problem than, than just at Fry's. It, it just, didn't, just didn't bode well. Yeah. But, you know, you know, much like uh, it's kind of an interesting contrast to Radio Shack, right, which also had a lot of obscure uh, hobbyist level uh, merchandise. But, of course, there you were dealing with many, many nationwide, uh, very small format stores as opposed to these fry stores that were more geographically concentrated and you know had uh, had massive uh, footprints um, but uh, but definitely the the end of an era uh, and uh, followed up by news that Best Buy is going to be laying off uh, 5,000 uh, full-time workers as it transitions to a more part-time workforce and looks to bring more of its uh, its business online, so uh, clearly a you know a broader trend uh, that was of course aggravated by the pandemic. Yeah, and and you see things like Kickstarter or Indiegogo, which we hit on last week. They also helped erode what retailers were doing, especially a retailer like Fry's, where you were getting exposure to totally new products and and product classes. Now you're getting exposure to those in a, uh, a Kickstarter type environment with campaigns where you can buy in and, and, you know, if you get the product, then you pay for it. So uh, we talked last week about how Amazon is moving into that, that market segment. So the discovery is changing significantly and, and the way new products are being brought to market is changing significantly. It used to be that you wanted to be at Fry's if you were a, a manufacturer, you wanted to have your product there and in the, the heyday of HD, they did phenomenal business mm, as right. people were upgrading to HD televisions and, and all of the accoutrements that went along with that, the DVD players. The and mount. That. Yep. 
Right, the Blu-ray player, right. Blu-ray players, yeah, the HD versus Blu-ray days uh, were big days for for retailers like Fry's. Do you think uh, a retailer like Fry's could ever exist in the future? Will we have an environment where an electronics retailer at a national level or, or you know, it was really a regional retailer that, that expanded into some opportune markets. Uh, can that, can that business model exist today? I, th- I think it's tough. I, you know, you look at, uh, for example, here in New York, you've got uh, PC Richard, you know, which has been around for over, over a hundred years. Um, <clears throat> you know, very, uh, a lot of longevity, uh, we, you know, we've certainly had a lot of chains uh, close here over the years, including uh, J&R, Computer World, Downtown, which was nothing like Fry's, but, you know, it was something of a, of a local, um, you know, lo- local, um, lo- local point for, you know, a lot of inventory, a lot of discovery, a lot of different categories. Uh, but I, I would not say, you know, PC Richard is a very, uh, you know, place that, that people do a lot of discovery you know, it's, uh, I, th- I think it's a very relationship built business. They've gone into categories like mattresses uh, to, you know, offset some of the, I guess, uh, seasonality or of, uh, of consumer electronics and, and some of the fickleness uh, in some of those categories. So I think there's been some interesting experiments, uh, such as this um, store beta, B number eight, T-A. Yep. Uh, and uh, to your point about, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, uh, these guys have tried to serve as kind of a merchandising destination for some of these products that have uh, come out of the market because I still think, you know, there's there's this really challenging bridge issue for a lot of these products where they'll sell a couple of thousand units, you know, to the Indiegogo backers. And then the question is, how do you get deeper into the mainstream? You know, maybe, maybe kind of the, uh, the, the whole nature of Kickstarter and Indiegogo is that you're appealing to a niche audience and maybe your product never will uh, be, be a mass market product. Uh, I, I think really, you know, perhaps the only route is, is to get acquired, you know, by a company who has those retail ties uh, and can make the investments and, and get the scale up and bring the price point down. So, Well, I think the other thing that you see them doing is tying into bigger platforms, especially the digital assistants, the, the Amazon Mm-hmm. Alexas of the world and the Google's assistants of the world where they can tie into that that ecosystem. And so when you're looking for a product, I've, I've had this experience a lot lately where I'm looking for a product that's voice enabled. And so that narrows my set. And then at the end of the day, I'm willing to trust the brand where in the past I might not have trusted a brand I didn't know or recognize. I am because it it's providing me the functionality that I want. So if I think about like a a light switch that's voice enabled or something else like that. I don't, I'm not so concerned that the brand will uh, deliver the value proposition that I need because I trust that the integration works well enough uh, with Alexa. Sure. I I would just say in the physical world, probably the best example of that now is uh, the Apple stores, right? That have uh, sections devoted to things that work well with iPhones and Siri and HomeKit, uh, so that's uh, that can be a real showcase for uh, new uh, new technology companies. And it is a boon for for companies to get into an Apple Store. Any store that requires oh, game changer. Yes, any any store that requires appointments to visit, and, and that was able to do appointments, especially during the pandemic, is a, a retail model that will 
will uh, survive at least for, for now in the current environment. Uh, well, that's probably a great place to close it for the week. Thanks again for joining this episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubrovac, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>